Thanks for joining me. You sound perfect. You sound great. You have such a good voice. I've (laughs) I've been listening to you on, um, I don't know if you remember doing these. Well, they they weren't that long ago. You were on Silly Rabbits, which Uh, doesn't exist anymore. And what's your theory? What's my theory? What's your theory? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I do remember being on them, but vaguely. I don't know. They were a while ago, huh? And I listened to those two episodes and I thought, he is brilliant. You are brilliant. Your insights into the state of things and the human condition and all of it. It's just, I'm, I'm so in line with what you say. Oh, well, thank you. I think it's like Jung. I've gone crazy so many times. I've seen it. Mm. <laughs> I've been down to that underworld so many times. I'm like, ah. You put things <laughs> into words that I've never heard anybody put into words before. Mm. So that, oh, well, thank you. that's what I love about it. And I think you and I might, did we, you know, and also I, I, I don't think I've ever said this on any of my shows, but I have a horrible memory. I have a really difficult, I've always been like that. And I've always relied on notes very heavily. In fact, students, my fellow students would buy my notes from me because I took such great (laughs) notes, but it's not good because I'm kind of lost without my notes. Do, do you know what I mean? I can't remember yeah. things. So I can't remember. And and I think I struggled with this when I was doing your show a couple months ago is I couldn't remember if I had said something already. And then when we did the pickups later, I couldn't remember what I said, you know, <laughs> earlier. And so I, I apologize if I repeated myself. And now I had totally forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> it sounds like me. That's something. What is it called? Lethologia? Well, you forget names, but now I'm thinking it's even worse. I mean, it's just... It's, now, that's interesting uh, because I've never had an issue with names. Oh, I'm terrible. That's It kills me. I will forget names immediately. Ugh. Isn't that interesting? I, yeah. I remember names, but I don't remember stuff, you know, facts. I love facts. Um, but I, And I wonder if it's because I wrote everything down from an early age. And so I didn't develop. My, I didn't spend time developing my memory. Yeah, you might have to go text one of those Giordano Bruno inner studio courses. I have friends who do that. <laughs> what? And, uh, what is yeah. that? Tell me. It's a whole uh, the Hermetic tradition, which was revived by the the Renaissance magicians, where you create uh, these inner worlds to remember things. So instead of remembering, I have to go pick up spaghetti at the store. Mm -hmm. You think of spaghetti being this exaggerated vision of spaghetti hanging all over your house and turning into snakes. And suddenly you will remember, you have that vision. And as you're going to the store, you will remember spaghetti. You basically create an inner mansion as they call it. Because 
as your show is talked so much, we are creatures of metaphors and, you know, yeah. narrative. Linear thinking is still new and alien to us when it comes down mm. to it. That was really interesting. The, the last episode I did with Dr. Winborn on the metaphorical psyche. And, yeah, you know, what was even more interesting about that is that I had another analyst that I was speaking with prior to that say that she would like to do an episode. I just decided I'm not even going to bother trying to clear my throat tonight. So I'm going with the raspy uh, vibe here. So <laughs> she said that she wanted to do an episode about metaphor. And I thought, yeah. oh, okay, that's interesting. And then Dr. Winborn, it was all about that. And then today, I had to look something up in James Hollis's latest book that we did an episode about in June. And he lists these three kind of um, three, see now what, I don't know, three things, <laughs> such a horrible word. <laughs> and the third one is everything is metaphor. Oh. How did I know? I didn't remember that from, I read the book, we did an episode, and I talked about it on the episode, but I didn't remember that. Everything is metaphor. So, yes, this is a quarantine edition, but I still wrote an intro about you that I'd like to read. Sure, of course. Let's go anywhere. I've got some things I want to hit on, but yeah. we don't have to be linear. We can just go with it where it goes. Yeah, I've got so, six or... pages of notes here. <laughs> I've got like two or three big things I want to share with you. I'm glad. So, I'm really that glad I haven't did. shared with anybody. You know, and I, one thing I yeah. don't even one thing I don't even think unions know about this when I share. Well, I have a friend who had a discovery. And most people in the union community have no idea about this. Oh. So I'm going to test it with you. You're going to be my uh, my product test to see about it. <laughs> well, I love that because I actually, and I had forgotten to ask you this, um, I, and the reason why I brought up Silly Rabbits and What's My Theory, I want to make sure I have that right. See, that's another thing. Is it called What's My Theory or What's Your Theory? I don't remember. I don't remember. That was a while ago. I can't remember. So what I was going to ask you is, it's what's your theory? If you did have anything that you wanted to talk about that you hadn't talked about already, because I also saw that you were a guest, and you have your own show, which we're going to talk about, but you've been a guest on other shows a lot. And when I was doing that for a while, what I recognized was that I was repeating myself a lot, and I didn't... I didn't want to do that. I didn't want every every interview I did to right. to, to to sound alike or to cover areas I had, I had already covered. So I was wondering what we could cover that maybe you wanted to talk about that you hadn't talked about before. So you beat me to it. Yeah, yeah, that. And, uh, of course, if we're going to talk Jung, his Gnosticism, Seven yes. Sermons to the Dead. Yes. And let's do that and see where it goes. Yeah. Okay. So I will read the intro I wrote and... Please feel free to stop me if any of this is wrong, and we'll correct it just right here. All right. I'm Laura London, and this is a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining me this evening for the 10th episode in this series is the host of Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, Miguel Connor. He is, in the words of our friend Gordon White, an independent iconoclast, and a walking, talking library of Alexandria. As the legendary host of Aeon Bite, 
His life quest is to take his audience from ancient connections to modern meaning. He often says, write your own gospel and live your own myth, or someone else will do that for you. Now in its 14th year, his wildly popular show deals with eternal heresies and game-changing mysticism. Miguel is the author of the critically acclaimed Voices of Gnosticism, interviews with Elaine Pagels, Marvin Mayer, Bruce Chilton, Bart Ehrman, Karen King, Stephen Davies, and other leading scholars, and its sequel, Other Voices of Gnosticism, interviews with Tobias Churton, Nicola Denzi-Lewis, Richard Smoley, Gary Lockman, Stephen Heller, David Brakey, Robert Price, Eric G. Wilson, Nathaniel Deutsch, Sean Martin, Eric Davis, Daniel C. Matt, Willis Barnstone, and Ismo Dunderberg. He is also the author of the fantasy novel The Executioner's Daughter and the post-apocalyptic epic vampire series The Dark Instinct Trilogy, which includes Stargazer, Heretic, and the Queen of Darkness. Is that right? That is right. Yes, I think Stargazer is actually the Queen of Darkness. The Queen of Darkness was the name of the novel when it was published through... Um, God, we were just talking about names before uh, before this show. <laughs> What's the big publisher out there in New York? Oh, I forgot the name of it. But it was a big publisher. came out in the late 90s, but eventually the publisher gave me back my rights and so i republished it as stargazer stargazer is the title i wanted it to be originally but it's a trilogy so is it stargazer heretic and the queen of darkness no no it's uh stargazer slash the queen of darkness and then heretic and i've never written the third one because i I feel if i write the third one my life will end because i think i was i was yeah i was put on earth for this trilogy as strange as it's uh, yeah time time uh was it Uh, warner books that's who published it okay time warner warner books published it in the late 90s yes what the hell was that it sounds like i sounded like i barked did you hear that No. no no i didn't hear any barks Okay, his articles and fiction have appeared in such publications as The Gnostic Journal, The Heretic, Mindscape, Reality Sandwich, and The Sumerian Journal. And he has been the coveted author of the month for GrahamHancock.com. Miguel has lectured or appeared at such events as Mythicist Milwaukee, The Alan Eisenberg Show on WRJN, Magic Radio on AM 1680 Chicago, Rune Soup, Skeptico, The Higher Side Chats, and the Gnostic Countercultures Conference at Rice University. He has done narrations for audiobooks like Concerto of the Rising Sun and The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Miguel lives in the lawful dystopia of Chicago, patiently waiting for the beginning of the world. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you'll find links to everything that is discussed in the show notes. This episode is being recorded on the evening of Tuesday, September 8th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. So, you and I are both here in Chicago. I have to correct you on that one. I am no longer in Chicago. You are no longer in Chicago. Where are you? No, I got the hell out of there, and I'm so happy I did. I am 
near Wakanda, close to the Wisconsin border in unincorporated territory. And it has been, it's awesome. <laughs> I was going to say still Chicago uh, has its reaches. So how far out of the city are you? About what, 30 miles, 35 miles, oh, okay. something like that. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's been awesome. I feel sorry for all my friends like you right now in Chicago because yeah. uh, the quarantine has been a lot less here where I live. Uh, it's almost like the quarantine was forgotten in a lot of places. Really? And, and it's been such an, that. yeah, it's a great opportunity uh, when the quarantine hit. I had to pivot to some strange places because I realized these are weird times. Mm -hmm. So what did Hunter S. Thompson say? When the, the yeah. going gets weird, the weird go professional. Yeah. So I raised my weirdness and I started spending a lot of time outside. And if obviously, you know, Aeon Bite, I am no fan of Gaia and her vulva and her killing factories and all that. I think nature is a mixed bag and I make no qualms about it. But in some sort of irony of the gods, I've this summer I've been spending like six mm. hours outside a day. Really? And this is uh it was sort of my rebellion because I felt there was something inhumane about the quarantine. Yes. And I felt, okay, if they're gonna force me to stay at home, I'm not gonna stay at home, but I'm not gonna go to these commercial places that right. I'm allowed to. So I spend six hours a day and I have connected with the older gods. I am rejecting these new American gods that were being thrown at us. And even today, Laura, you know, it's been just a shitty day with rain all the time. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've spent an hour and a half outside, two hours. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to before the as soon as we're done, I'm going outside. I don't care if it's raining. I'm going to spend three or four hours outside. So that's been my my war against the new gods. <laughs> I love it. That's interesting. You mentioned that. Uh, I actually have not been outside today, but I too have been spending a lot of time outside. I was an avid gym goer. I used to go to the gym every day. And when the quarantine started, I actually started mine on March 11th. Oh. And I, I haven't been to the gym since before that date. And mm. I I uh, canceled my gym membership and I have no plans on going back and I'm doing other things instead. And one of them is trying to spend as much time outside as I possibly can um, going to the park because, um, you know, they closed the beach and I couldn't even yep. go to my beach, Oak Street Beach. Mm -hmm. And All right. um, so I do go to the park and I had listened to and I wanted to look up his name and I didn't. Somebody wrote a book called Earthing. Oh. And. This was, I think it came out back in maybe around 2012, and I heard him on Whitley Strieber's podcast, Dreamland, and it was kind of an unusual guest for Whitley. And he talked about how we need to reconnect to the earth um, by removing our shoes and walking on the earth and not having any barrier between us and the earth. And so I had started doing that back then, and then I got away from it. And I'm trying to do that as much, as often as I can. It's not easy, you know, it's not as really safe to walk just anywhere barefoot, um, <laughs> but I lie on the, on the ground. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm trying to stay connected to the earth, but tell me why you, you didn't prior to this, choose to do that 
I did, but not so much. And it's almost like I always wondered why it was a, a gift. I mean, again, living in Chicago for all these years, yeah. it always felt nature was so was very tamed and suppressed. And I remember working downtown, even in June years ago, you still don't see the sun that much because of the, the skyscrapers yeah. and the shade. So I just became disconnected. And of course, yeah. somebody who's into Gnosticism, you get into that mode, which is true, which uh, nature is not really holy or benign. It has its own agenda. Yes, there is divinity in it, but it's trapped. So I think these both both it's of these dangerous as hell, yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't care. We humans are just food for it. We are part of the the grand cosmic uh, buffet of nature. We're nothing. So, um, but again, once you get connected like the ancient Manichaeans, it, it really is about trying to release the divine spark in nature yes. through empathy, through prayer, through uh, connecting and as uh, Gary Lockman says, you can become the caretaker of the cosmos. It doesn't mean you are some hippie, but you try to take care of what is alive and what is good, what is nurturing, what mm -hmm. is empathing out in nature, which I've noticed animals are can be extremely empathic. But the the lockdown sort of pivoted because the lockdown has been just an amazing apocalypse for me. It uh, opened up so many channels with me. Uh, it's I don't know how to explain it, but I looked out at I felt these strange feelings when it happened, and these feelings felt like voices in my head. And when I realized these voices were very fearful and anger, but these voices were coming from the entire world. It's hard to explain, but mm -hmm. as an alcoholic, I looked out and I realized the whole world was acting like an alcoholic, full of fear, mood swings, uh, yeah, blind to the unknown or sort of dizzy to the unknown. And when I saw how the world, how the whole world was a reflection of my insight, I pivoted really deep within myself and made all these changes going spending six hours a day out in nature mm. regardless and so many other practices and attitudes that I change. It's almost like uh, how do, when I saw how the world was behaving and I realized that it was so fueled by fear and other lower emotions mm. and how these emotions had been working with me still after all these years of work, how prevalent they were. But it's kind of like when I act like a dork and my children, uh, they imitate me for fun. And I get angry and I'm like, oh, my God, they're right. They act mm -hmm. like a complete dork. Or if a friend does something really uh, doesn't act with histrionics and pretends they're you, you get mad. But for some reason, as humans, when you see a story or a metaphor, it strikes deeper. Yes. And it helps. Uh, your show is about, the, yeah, we're talking, both of us are into Jung and Austin. It's all about the image, the metaphor, the symbol that really can um, create deep movements within ourselves. So watching the world basically collapse the psyche of the world collapse and become fragmented this year for various uh, reasons allowed me to see my inner world, I guess, as above, so below, mm -hmm. as outside, so with it. Yeah. And I was able to really look at my inner house and decide, well, again, if 
if the world's gone crazy, uh, I'm, I'm going to get professional with my craziness and I'm going to really take a deep dive as, uh, as I say on my show, it may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake because I think every institution, every religion, every person is just exposing themselves, opening them up. Yes. Everything has been just thrown out into the canvas of reality, even as reality is collapsing. What did Yeats say? The center cannot hold in his poem, The Second Coming, although as friends of mine tell me, there is no longer any center. So there is a lot of opportunity, certainly for inner healing, inner awakening and inner growth. It's it's all there. And mm -hmm. again, I almost feel, Laura, that if the world went back to normal, I would just fall apart yeah. because, again, it feels like this is the age of Hermes, as your guest uh, yeah. said, and I've said on my show, this is the age of transition, of doorways, of the trickster. You have to be a trickster to survive and thrive. This is the age of Hermes, so we better let our inner Hermes just come out and play. I hope that made sense. I just sort of kind of came out. Yeah, <laughs> just... and uh, I, I, a few things came to mind, and uh, I appreciate you sharing that. My fear is I've ha I had two people today say to me, well, in email, that they can't wait for this, quote, craziness to be over and things get back to normal. And I just thought, damn, I really <laughs> hope that doesn't happen because we would have just missed the whole thing. Yeah, and it's not. I don't think. I think it's going to get worse. Before. No, exactly. Yeah, I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way it was. And how can it? I think a lot of us have been shifted by it. And and if things went, if the quote craziness went away and things went back to normal, then we would have missed the point. Yeah. Of, of all of it, and so that frightened me to to hear that. And um, you mentioned. I just didn't want to let this go by. You mentioned being alcoholic. And again, the most popular or most visited page of speaking of Jung's website, aside from the front page, is in the blog, I have the full letters between Bill Wilson and Carl Jung. Mm. And that continues to be the most visited page. And it has been since I started looking at it month after month after month, I don't know when it started, but it's been every month. And I don't wow. know, I don't, you know, I don't have links to it anywhere. I don't even know where, I don't even remember. Oh, I did an episode with David Shane who wrote the book, The War of the Gods and Addiction. And he mentioned the letters, and so I got the AA grapevine to give me permission to reprint those letters there. But I'm sure they're elsewhere. I don't know why people are going to Speaking of Jung's website for those letters. So the reason why I had mentioned that you and I were both in Chicago, you're you're in the Chicago area. Um, yes. was Chicago that land. Chicago land area, yeah is that I was born in New York City and I grew up in New Jersey and Virginia and Seattle. And you were born in Portugal and you grew up in Mexico. Is that right? Correct. And here we both are in Chicago, wound up in, in the Chicago area. And I'm very interested in where people were born, uh, what environment they grew up in and where they went to school. And it 
I was thinking about why am I interested in that? It gives me an idea of where somebody's coming from. And another similarity, I've heard you say that you were raised Catholic and so was I. Oh. And here we both are. Yeah. So tell me why you refer to, well, this isn't a good question, but I, I was wondering why you refer to Chicago <laughs> as a lawful dystopia. Uh, we don't have to spend too much time on that, but <laughs> well, anybody who lives in Chicago know it's it's, well, you, it's what, reputation. What I don't know what the hell it means. Sometimes it just came <laughs> okay. to me. I mean, if Chicago is not a dystopia, I don't know. It's mm. I mean, it seems very organized, but it's not. I, there was oh. one time I was thinking. Here's an example. Well, I lived in. Um, usually the humble park area uh -huh. and when i when i moved there it was pretty edgy very edgy mm -hmm. and uh, i've i've taught i've been a, a teacher in the south side and so forth so i've seen the underbelly yeah. of chicago if you would we're talking you're sitting there you're reading your newspaper and you hear gunshots or something like that i mean mm -hmm. it's just uh, your bikes are stolen from your balcony uh, you get uh, panhandled 10 times a day yeah. uh, you see gang members walking around and you know mm -hmm. what signs not to say to show them mm -hmm. but uh but i was with my family down at the miracle mile and um and uh, yeah the gold coast yeah and i remember some lady like walking that, that, and she was that, having... that's where i live by the way but okay oh okay okay well, you are with the elite then. No, it, but, it, it, no, no. <laughs> I'm just joking. There are all sides to everywhere. Yeah, no, no, that, that's the thing. Yeah, it's not really segregated. Anybody can, everybody hangs out there. And uh, you can get, even if I know friends that have gotten apartments for $400 a month, what? small ones. But yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a Broom while closet. Back. Yeah, exactly. But they're still in the Gold Coast. <laughs> they still can take two steps to the beach. Uh, yeah. They still live the good, very good life. But anyway, this lady started having convulsions and she started like shaking and she fell down. And it was like a swarm of cops and people that just came on her and just cleaned her out. It's like she disappeared from the what? canvas, from the from reality. And I was like, wow, they really try to keep especially in the touristy places, mm. any sort of uh, distraction or uh, anybody messing around with the matrix of what Chicago should be. Mm. And that sort of struck me how, again, I came, the lawful dystopia. I mean, Chicago is chaos. It's a very violent, raw city. But uh, somehow people keep it together and make it seem like it's... Well, this orderly city that we live. So that, that's my take. And uh, it's, a, it's a city where the energy is very sad. Uh, my spiritual life is much better since I've left her, I think, because of all the, well, there's so much pain and death in that city. Well, how long were you here? Uh, about, God, good question. About, God, 14 years I was mm -hmm. in the city. So, and... Love the city, yeah, but it was time to it was time to get out. Mm -hmm. I had three small kids, three dogs, two cats, oh, and wow. uh, yeah, yeah a, a two bedroom condo was just not cutting. Oh it. no, no, no. So when you started Aeon Bite uh, fourteen years ago, it was called Coffee, Cigarettes, and Gnosis. Is that true? And you were all yeah. originally going to do eight episodes. Yeah, I was just uh, learning about Gnosticism, 
And I felt the best way to learn about it was talk, well, go to the horse's mouth. Right. That's even a saying. So, And make it uh, recorded for others after me who wanted to learn about this ancient tradition. So it seemed like something to be helpful, to learn, to really get dialogue going. And I was uh, part of this atheist radio network, uh, Free Thought Media. And um, so I started the podcast and I said, well, eight episodes should be enough. And mm -hmm. I got all these, again, great scholars, some of the translators of the Nag Hammadi Library, yeah. Bart Ehrman and so forth. But after eight and I wasn't doing it for the money. And after eight episodes, I was like, well, there's I'm just realizing there's more and there's more and there's more. And years later, I'm still doing it, although obviously I've only been doing it full time since uh, summer of 2018. I guess it's weird because that's exactly when I left Chicago. Somehow leaving Chicago mm -hmm. opened some more doors and I said, I'm doing this full time. Mm -hmm. Or you might say one episode a week or that's what I mean by full time. Well, I think that in going back to the Chicago thing is that I was living in Columbus, Ohio for many years before I moved to Chicago and it was... I mean, the suburbs, it was so, I, I don't want to get off on that, but it was uh, the opposite of Chicago. So Chicago was a relief to me after living there for a while. And then um, I tried leaving the city. I bought a house in the end of 2013, beginning of 2014 in Geneva, out by Fermilab, where in Batavia, you know, out there, right, yeah, St. Yeah. Charles area. Yeah. And I was in that house for about two weeks and I realized that I didn't belong there. And it, <laughs> but it gave me perspective because I moved all of my stuff out there. I got a big house, a big four bedroom house with a basement and a yard. And I, I wanted to store all my stuff. And I realized that that wasn't, uh, where I wanted to be and I sold almost everything I owned and and moved back uh, into the city so I don't wow. know why I'm mentioning that but um where I live is not yeah. the suburbs it's an incorporated land I mean I am by the swamp there's farmland mm. there's preserves I mean it's uh our, our water comes from a well, so it oh, is nice. there. There are nights, especially when the coyotes are mating, where they will be in packs, and I have to go outside and make sure the cats are inside. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty. It can. It's not wilderness, but it's getting pretty close. So that's what I really love. I love the rawness and the openness yeah. and the the you, freedom. Yeah, but like you, uh, yeah, the I would. I think I'd die if I go to the suburbs. Yeah, I, I really thought that I I would. <laughs> uh, I would disintegrate, and yeah. and so uh, four months later, yeah, I moved back. But yeah. you could probably see the stars then where you are. Yeah, it's good. I mean, there is not much. Uh, for example, uh, there's miles before the first street light is, so it is a little bit better. But again, I've been to places in Europe and Mexico where you really see the stars, oh, yeah. and there's nothing like it. It's mm -hmm. just incredible. So where well, there's no light pollution here, we still have a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. So where do you want to go? Uh, I have lots and lots of notes. I think that before you answer that question, I would like to give the listeners a definition just to get going of Gnosticism, because it is a bit confusing. It is 
difficult to explain. I can't explain it. I've heard you explain it and you've got such a great handle on it. So would you tell us what Gnosticism is and who the Gnostics were, and then you can go wherever you want after that? Sure. Well, it's uh, Gnosticism is your worst nightmare. We're already nature-hating people <laughs> who just want to rebel anarchists. But then again, a- anarchists is just Greek for without archons, which is Ooh. the great enemy of the Gnostics. So uh, and it's, yeah, it's not easy. I mean, if somebody came, if you had a guess and you said, well, what's Buddhism or what's Christianity? What's Judaism? Of course they can't say it in five minutes. Right. Uh, I guess they could try, but most people, I guess, have a grasp of what Gnosticism, but officially it's an ancient, uh, tradition that usually that people, most scholars seem to think came in the first, second century of, uh, AD and it um and there are various streams there's a christian there's a pagan gnosticism which we call hermeticism later on there would be jewish types although there's a good argument that they're not many gnostics started out as jews but the the kabbalah could be considered a form of gnosticism in islam sufism so it almost seems like a as someone said, it's a parasite religion, although April DeConnick puts it well, it's more of a, a metaphysical orientation. Regardless of where you are, it's sort of a, a, a spirituality that can work or thrive in the underbelly of larger religions. And uh, uh, Christian Gnosticism is the perfect example with the Cathars and some of the ancient Gnostics that mm-hmm. sort of were were part of the church, but then had their little secret societies on the side. But Gnosticism basically posits that we live in a sim in a simulated reality, uh, perhaps a prison planet. Um, that's an idea that's very popular today. Are we living in a simulation? I mean, Elon Musk and Neil deGrasse Tyson and some other cats are have posited that, and that we are t- basically here. But we are not really part of here. Each one of us houses this divine spark, this shard of infinity. And our task is to sort of wake up to this reality that we have this divine spark and that part of us exists beyond the material world, beyond all the galaxies, beyond all the stars, that we were once a part of this supreme consciousness that, well, Plato would call them the monad, the Gnostics called it the invisible spirit or the pleroma, Greek for fullness, and that somehow through some cosmic cataclysm or some other Gnostics simply as the after effect of uh, singularity becoming a multiplicity, we fell into the material world and forgot who we were. And But the supreme intelligence does send these... uh, messengers of light or Gnostic revealers, this living information uh, that comes to awaken us to our divine origins. And once we are awakened through this process, which they call gnosis, uh, Greek for knowledge, but it's actually a sort of a special type, a a direct experience with larger realities while seeing the reality around us as ultimately a construct uh, by these lesser beings that have uh, that now control the world, and through these either ecstatic shamanistic 
exercises or through uh, a dialogue with a um, with a psychopomp or a, a mystagogue, we can uh, further awaken our divine spark and take these uh, astral journeys up beyond the cosmos and interact with this supreme intelligence and uh, slowly become more awake, slowly become more human, and eventually become, you might say, divine on Earth, fully divine, fully human on Earth, and eventually, hopefully, waken others up and eventually take our flight out of this material world. And these Gnostic revealers had many names. Uh, Jesus would be one, Zoroaster, uh, the goddess Sophia, even for some Gnostics who made their way to the East, Buddha was considered a Gnostic revealer. Mm -hmm. And these are our teachers that are not so much there to save us, but to wake us up to our true origin. And then there's other features about Gnosticism, if you want to talk about what they thought of uh, the afterlife reincarnation, their uh, penchant for deconstructing other texts, just breaking them up and rewriting them. Uh, there are various uh, uh, rituals and exercises that could include uh, from sex magic to meditation to entheogens to anything else. Um, they're leaning on sort of a <clears throat> divine feminine principles that might be very primordial back to ancient times of some scholars have discovered and so forth. But again, it's, it's, it's a metaphysical orientation. The, the Gnostics would appear, it's almost like you wake up, they weren't really missionary, it's different people would wake up at different times and start their own Gnostic groups with their own realization. There were Gnostics in Rome called the Valentinians who appeared Catholics on the outside, but were doing these mystery uh, ex mystery religion on the side. There were Gnostics in Alexandria. There were Gnostics all throughout history hidden. The Sufis themselves are considered Gnostics and they've had to be, they've had to be underground for much of their existence throughout history. So I think that's uh, sort of my elevator pitch or brief, uh, summary of Gnosticism, Laura. So you mentioned having to hide why did the Gnostics have to hide who they were? Well, it's because their ideas were were and are so dangerous. Mm -hmm. We are talking in ancient times, ancient times in 90% of the world today, right. to say that the gods are actually demons, that they are, as the Gnostics call them, archons, mm -hmm. that... Uh, they are basically the agent Smith and the architect of the matrix. Yeah. That is blasphemy. And, right. the, and the Gnostics were not just saying they are these wardens, these cosmic wardens that keep us in a prison, but all of their servants are also basically demonic. And in ancient, well, again, ancient times in most of the modern world today, <laughs> mm -hmm. you assume that the churches and the governments have divine providence and we're all trying just to make a better society. The Gnostics were the ultimate anarchists. And they said, nope, these are, this system is a complete lie. You need to be, take the red pill. We live in the Matrix or the Truman Show or uh, the, the Emerald City or whatever you want to call it. And we have to wake out and that, wake up and mm -hmm. get out. Mm -hmm. And that kind of idea was extremely controversial in ancient times. And they got, 
persecuted by pagan, by Buddhist, by Jewish, by Islamic uh, authorities, by secular authorities, because that's a, a dangerous idea. And even today, if you tell people that the ultimate supremacy is the individual and that we don't need these governments and we don't need this, uh, hey, teachers, leave us alone like Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're just another brick in the wall. It's, uh, it's not the kind of uh, idea or attitude you want to have a civilized society. Mm -hmm. You mentioned heresy. And I heard you say that the word heresy is about choosing what you want to believe rather than accepting what you're told. Is this about how difficult it is to understand and know what reality is? I would say so. I mean, I was just thinking, who was it? It was a, either Jung said it or a guest in your show said it that our mission on this earth is not to be good but to be ourselves Young. and yeah. our yes and our society wants us to be good yeah but that's not what we're here for and being mm. ourselves is dangerous it is individualistic it is lonely and it is anarchist at the end of the day so i think uh the Gnostics and Jung would certainly agree. And yeah, the word heresy comes from uh, making a choice beyond the norm. And it w really wasn't, I know today there's, uh, when people get romantic about the past, they think it's a horrible word. But in ancient times, it wasn't such a bad word. It was, uh, you've made a choice and you're kind of uh, idiosyncratic, but it doesn't mean you're the demon. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the church fathers always thought they argued with the Gnostics, but they always thought they could save them. And also many of the church fathers said, no, 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 no. They say they have this divine knowledge about the world, but we have it. Uh, like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria would say, we are the real Gnostics. We really know God. And the Gnostics would be like, no, you worship this God of the Old Testament who's a beast, who's capricious, who's homicidal. How could you worship this God? He is the wrong God. There is a better God, and there's no way this God would be the father of Jesus. And there was this argument. It was only later on that heresy became got, became stricter or more negative. But a heretic is always somebody who can be redeemed, at least within the Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. Do, do we live in Gnostic times? Oh, my God. We have, yes. I mean, it almost seems today, Laura, that... The Gnostics were accused of being crazy and paranoid, mm -hmm. of being conspiracy theorists, because some of them thought there was demons in every rock and yeah. every institution had some shadowy power pulling the Ooh. strings. And it seems like this is the world we live in. In what fact, you know? paranoia, yeah, paranoia is no longer seen as a something negative but almost like a coping skill to survive. Mm -hmm. It's like we have to look over our shoulders because it's become apparent that the institutions we live in are not to be trusted and certainly people nobody trusts the institutions the churches uh, uh our history our heroes that is falling down and that's a very gnostic thing and reality has become very malleable or seen that way again i mentioned elon musk and neil degrasse the idea that we live in a simulation is not seen as crazy 
as it was 2,500 years ago, 100 years ago. Now it seems more in the idea that there might be some sort of stellar overlords above us. Again, is not so crazy. There was a, there was a, a poll that said even the United States, I think 18 million Americans believe in David Icke's lizard people. And that's, and I'm sure people have other theories about how things, and people get mad at me, but I'm going to say it straight. I mean, you look at movements like Antifa or Mm -hmm. QAnon, and they have very strong Gnostic elements. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. And you look at Southern, you look at how people act on Twitter. They have this, (laughs) we have the right secret information. And those people there are archons and they must be destroyed. We are the elite and they're trying to get us. And this is a conspiracy. Yes, these are definitely Gnostic times. Or I don't know if the world's catching up. Is we the, the veil has been lifted. But yeah, these are Gnostic times. This is very much a Philip K. Dick world. And as I say, this is the age of Hermes, whether you like it or not. You just, you're going to have to deal with it. So the Gnostics believe that we had to start by knowing ourselves, right? Bingo. And, and, and that reminds me of the scene with the Oracle in the first Matrix, in the Matrix, the, the original movie, where she points to the sign above the door leading from the kitchen out into, I think, the living room. And she asks Neo if he knows what it means. And it it's supposedly it's Latin for know thyself. Mm-hmm. And you listen to speaking of Jung, and you've heard me say this a lot. I mean, I really hammer this home sometimes. What is the difference between a therapist and a Jungian analyst? A Jungian analyst, and Freudian analyst, psychoanalysts have to be analyzed themselves first before they can analyze anybody else. So to me, what that means is they have to know themselves before they can help anybody else, see anybody else. It is a necessity. And that others don't have to do that first, and that they can go out there and control thousands of people, millions of people, without first (laughs) having done the work on themselves, makes me furious. And you said it's a long journey to find out who you are. And that's why analysis takes a long time. It takes many years, and it takes a Jungian analyst on the average seven to 10 years to become an analyst, because you have to take out that time to know who you are. So why did the Gnostics believe we had to start by knowing ourselves? I mean, that tradition obviously has been around since the Oracle at Delphi. The Gnostics somehow, I mean, there's many streams that you might say culminates with the Gnostic, ancient Egyptian mysteries, the Zoroastrian idea of a good and evil and that uh, humans have that the individual is sort of the center of the universe. I mean, the Greek thought and so forth, uh, middle Platonism. But the Gnostics somehow through their vision saw the supreme reality as a mind. And again, Jung himself said, uh, these people found the secrets of the psyche, of the soul. I feel like I found some long lost friends. 
because when you see their Baroque mythology and it seems very Lovecraftian and trippy, but it, okay. it is, is yeah, it's, it, well, it is. I mean, when you read some of their gospels, but uh, there was, uh, who was it? Uh, William T. Volman, a writer in the New York Times. He said, as a corpus, the Gnostic scriptures are nearly incoherent, like mm. a crowd of sages, mystics, and madmen all speaking at once. But always they call upon us to know ourselves. Mm. And that's the key because, again, the Gnostic in the Gnostic cosmology, God or the supreme intelligence is a brain. It's a giant mind with the, all the aspects of the mind, uh, truth, uh, curiosity, uh, uh, goodness. I mean, they had these, some had 30 aspects, some had hundreds of aspects, but Jung saw that they were describing a mind again. And the hermetics are the same. That's why Gary Lockman called them the religion of the mind because everything was the mind. And even as their reality goes down and breaks down, you suddenly have the famous demiurge from uh, the Gnostics, which they associate him with the God of the Old Testament. And this is the great symbol for from the disconnected ego, the warped ego, because this demiurge is like the God of the Old Testament. He goes, there is no God but me, and I am a mm -hmm. jealous God. And that's our ego when it's disconnected from mm -hmm. the rest of the psyche, the mind. It thinks it's, I am all there is. I am everything. I am reality. And the demiurge is this sort of... Uh, well, it's this materialistic or ruler of matter who's full of rage and anger because he's disconnected from the rest of the mind. So the Gnostics said, well, if guess what? We are in the image of God. So if we can understand the mind of God, not just understand it, maybe heal it, because in a lot of the Gnostic texts, God basically went crazy. He lost his wisdom. There was a breakdown, and this demiurge came to rule matter. And, st and steal all this energy and throw it and throw this energy into the world, which would turn into us. As Stephen Davis said, uh, the Nasa story is uh, God went crazy and become us. It's not like uh, in the East where God is trying to know himself. No, God is psychotic. He is in pain. This great mind has been <laughs> ruptured and we have to heal this mind by knowing ourselves as mm -hmm. above, so below, as within, so outside. So if we can... We can go on this inner journey or even this astral journey. It's almost like it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Their out-of-body experiences and their inner work. If we can find out what happened at the beginning of time, where this trauma is, where did the cosmos break down? How does our mind work best? And how do we unify the mind with all these rituals and exercise? Then if we can heal the mind of God, we can heal our own mind. So self-knowledge was very important. In fact, some of the rituals are great because there was one ritual that the Gnostics did. What you know what they did? They shared their emotions. This is two thousand years ago. Mm. They would talk about how they were feeling today and how their day was. Now, nobody thought of that until what the nineteenth century or right. twenty when right. psychology right. came around. They were doing depth psychology long before depth psychology existed. Mm -hmm. So, and I know. It's not even that original because as I've been told uh, by scholars, uh, they came from the Egyptian matrix and Egyptian religiosity is very personal. We think of like the pharaohs and mm -hmm. only the pharaohs get, get buried and go through this. But in truth, for the Egyptians, every human being needed to make that journey to mm -hmm. Ra, to the serpent. Mm -hmm. Every human being needed to go to the afterlight 
afterlife, sorry, to the best of their abilities to get where they needed to get, or nobody got there. The entire humanity needed to take this voyage to the afterlife. The world was basically a runway for us to go into infinity. So everybody was very important. So in Egyptian religiosity, every person's mind and soul was very important. And the Gnostics took that. But again, they came to the conclusion that God was this giant mind and that we were a mind that could reconnect and become infinite. I just forgot what I said. Whatever I said, I hope it worked. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I I like that. So an attack on reality. I was very curious to know, and I asked an analyst this, and I don't think he answered me. Why do some people deny things like the moon landings or the, the flat earthists, the flat earth theorists who really believe the earth is flat and really believe we didn't go to the moon? And I heard you talk about that and you said that the questioning of those things, you know, are an attack, really, they're attacking reality. Right. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because I still don't have a real handle on what's going on there. I think, uh, well, uh, the Cheshire Cat said imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. And the Gnostics would agree. That's why they were so artistic. Uh, what they wrote had to be art, what they were creating. But uh, I think sometimes these, consp yes, it is an attack on reality because we don't trust reality. We've been lied to for so long by our churches, by our governments, uh, certainly by our parents. And it seems it's obvious that the system has never worked equally for everybody. Mm -hmm. And the system has never been fair. And the system has never been there for people to find their own inner world or take their own inner journey. It's been, it's again, the Demiurge will be laughing because it is stacked. So nobody can really look inside. So there is sort of this rebellion. And I think a lot of this conspiracy, sometimes it's, it's an idea of uh, trauma. Sometimes I think the whole of human existence, Laura, is the moment that our parents broke our soul. And that's where each one of us is stuck forever. And in the Gnostic mix, it is that way because there's a moment when Sophia breaks the soul of the Demiurge, scolds him, and he gets really pissed off and starts taking it out on humanity for the next, I don't know, 100,000 years. But I think a lot of this is a way to cope. I remember reading somebody about Flat Earth. He said, look, uh, Flat Earth psychologically puts humans back in the center of the universe mm -hmm. because humans have felt they've been sort of thrown around mm -hmm. in a meaningless existence. Flat Earth puts you right at the center, mm -hmm. right back at the beginning where you can have a vision out into the world. If you look at it from a psychological stance mm -hmm. and the moon landing the same, it says it gets me back on Earth where I can start yeah. over to see what the cosmos is because right now the cosmos is so vast and meaningless. Mm -hmm that it is you could easily go into nihilism so some of these conspiracies psychologically i think uh are both yes a rebellion against a reality and, and hopefully a way of recentering people so they can sort of reboot everything they've been taught and start over mm -hmm. i don't believe in flat earth and i'm agnostic on the moon landing something suspicious but i'm agnostic at the end of the day okay that's that's for uh, another episode. 
So I want to talk about selling out and how most of us, I've heard you talk about this, really want to sell out. We want to believe that this is all real and that, you know, we, even you, and, and, and I admit myself too, think sometimes, well, you know, maybe I'll just buy in, chill out, <laughs> you know, and. Yeah, maybe Trump will save me or Biden will save right. me. I'll give him a chance this time. Yeah, I'll and things vote. will get yeah. better and we'll start to feel better and yeah. I'll be able to relax and enjoy like everybody else when I. <laughs> a friend of mine laugh when we when we like run into Starbucks to get a quick cup of coffee and you know grab and go and we see somebody in there just sitting there casually with their legs crossed reading the newspaper like they don't have a care in the world mm -hmm. and I stop and look at that and I think really <laughs> how can, how do you do that so there's something inside of me, there's something inside of you that says no. There's something, there is something very wrong with this world. Yeah, like Neo, when Morpheus says there's something wrong with the world, it's like a splinter in your mind mm -hmm. driving you mad. I think that's what Hans Jonas, the great existential philosopher, said to the Gnostic, realize that our nature will never be aligned to the nature, to nature's nature. I know some people will say, well, that's because we're the Anunnaki planted us here or whatever. But I would say <laughs> right. at the end of the day, human beings are not aligned with this reality. And that's where a lot of pain happens. What? How, I would how, say how, so. how, how, how is that possible that we are not aligned with the reality that we were born into? Because we are gods and we are meant to be caretakers of the cosmos. But somebody fooled us into thinking we were just... Uh, meat sack monkeys and that we should worship these lower gods like uh, the god of the old testament or money or fame or the new american gods of uh, social media we were tricked <laughs> so that people could feed off of our energy yeah. like they feed off of our data they feed off of our labor and it doesn't have to be that way but it's a hard road and like you said sometimes it'd be nice to sell out oh i'll make the best of it we'll go back to normal yeah. The right. government really cares about its mm -hmm. citizens and all the, and nature doesn't, there's no viruses or diseases in nature and everything's <laughs> fine. And it's like, no, no, this is, uh, I mean, and it's a, it's, it's a really good news. That's, I mean, Joseph Campbell would talk about the idea of how myth opens up our channels. Again, we're talking metaphor, symbols, archetypal mm -hmm. symbols, energies is that, it's and I think he got it from Mercia Eliade, mm. or he got from his mentor. But it's the misterio tremendo and misterio fascinante. You you open your eyes and you say you're full of awe, but you're also full of horror because you realize how insignificant you are and how horrible this universe is, where everything eats everything. And I mean, as, yeah. as Stephen Heller said. Uh, the first sound of the universe was an ohm. It was munch, munch, munch. Mm. This is a predatory universe. But there is also so much beauty. There's also so much, uh, I don't know about divinity. In fact, that's the thing, too, which I wanted to mention. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm getting sidetracked. But my okay. first experience with Jung, I was reading The Watchmen when I was like 16, right? 
And I'm reading The Watchman by Alan Moore. And at the end of this chapter, there's always a quote. And it'd be Bob Dylan here or some philosopher there. And I read this quote that said, as far as we can discern, the whole purpose of existence is to kindle a light of meaning into the darkness of mere being. C.G. Jung. Yeah. And I, something went off inside me. I said, this is it. Yeah. This is the religion of the perennial religion of all times, because this makes sense how the universe is interactive, that the yes, this universe is a mechanistic hellhole, the highest plane of hell, <laughs> this cold, dark, horrible place. But we can it's interact. We can give it meaning and we can really transform reality by our imagination, by mm -hmm. our creativity, by our kindness, compassion. We can bring meaning to the universe. So Jung was the first person that taught me this sort of new way of looking at the world that replaced all the old ways, and I would come back later with Gnosticism. But to me, that's it remains one of my favorite sayings of all time. Mm -hmm. and, and again, as I tell people, they say, well, you're so negative. Why are you calling Earth hell? And why do you think Gaia is such a bitch? And, <laughs> human, and we live by these horrible archons that are draining us. And and I say, look, uh, the best news I ever had in my life was when I told myself I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Mm. And people are like, why? Because there was this honesty. I, I realized, I looked out and I said, I have destroyed my life. I have destroyed my inner life. I have created a hell around me and really dug myself into some bad places. But now I know why I have the self-knowledge. And now I know what with the self-knowledge I can do something about it. And I can turn all this darkness into something positive. I mm -hmm. can make this disease, these, you know, as David Schoen said, this dark archetype, I can push this dark yeah. archetype and, and I can bring these archons within me. And I can turn this into meaning. Again, I can make a kindle of light, a kindle of light of meaning into the darkness of mere being. And I can make my insanity work for me. And it's made a huge difference. I think in Gnosticism, you go, all right, like Joseph Campbell, you just got to look at the universe and say, okay, I know what you are. And now I'm going to use my imagination in this war against reality, and we're yeah. going to make it better. So that, that's that's my attitude, really, and that's what I try to do. That's everything right there. I mean, that says it all. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. Very well said. Oh, oh thank you. Very well I do said. have more bad news, though. <laughs> yeah, tell us. What, okay, what this is what I want. Okay. Yeah. This you have. I don't think anybody's heard anymore, okay. and I, I hope you can talk to all these amazing people you bring on your show, which I love to listen every week. That have helped me out during before the pandemic, uh, during the pandemic. It's like it's that gnosis, that self knowledge. But and this is not me, Laura. I can't be okay. original. It's my friend Jim West, who also lives in Chicago. I think he probably lives pretty close to where you live, and he is also a gnostic and. I like to read about Jung, and once in a while I read Jung, mm -hmm. but he actually sits there with the books, and he will sit in an evening and just t -t -t plow through these books and write notes and notes. He's just uh, an amazing individual. But on the topic of free will, mm -hmm. in Jung's book on alchemy, his third work, Mysterium Conjunctionis, I can't pronounce it. Yes, it's Latin. Mysterium Conjunctionis, it's Collected Works, Volume 14. Yes, page 474. 
Jung, I think, especially I love Jung towards the end of his life because he just doesn't give a shit anymore. He's <laughs> he's not worried about Martin Buber or all these other people. Like you know, th- you know, he just doesn't give a shit. He can tell Bill W. Yes, there is uh, there is ontological evil. There is a dark archetype. Sorry, we're screwed. The devil is real. He just doesn't care. He's putting all his cards on the table. I right? Love it. Yeah. But Jung basically says, he says, <laughs> excuse me. He says, the unconscious has a thousand ways of snuffing out a meaningless existence with surprising swiftness. Wow. In other words, Jung is saying, look, if you thought life was bad, that there's this <laughs> stuff out there, if you don't do what your unconscious does, it will kill you. <laughs> and he gives examples. It will make you step in front of the bus. It will make you yes. pick up a cigarette. It's like... Yes. Basically, the uh, your unconscious is not fucking around. It has a great <laughs> fate for you. It has a great <laughs> destiny if you listen to your soul and your and you align yourself with the psyche and like the demiurge. But if you don't, you're you're worthless to it. It will snuff you out and create another avatar if it wants to. And that when I when Jim told me this, I was like, oh crap! I need to stop screwing around with my life and get some therapy and listen to myself because I realize it is so true. It's uh, we're we're just little pawns in what our unconscious want, want wants, and I, I don't even know if we have free will. I think uh, who do. Is it Jung? Somebody in your show said uh, it was it was Jung. Free will is doing exactly what I'm I'm supposed to be doing right now. In other words, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be peaceful until you take the Arjuna mission that your unconscious wants for you. And there's a good chance if you keep fighting like Jonah and the whale and all that, it's just going to snuff you out. And uh, <laughs> To me, that's a suffering exists. And then Jung gets more. He talks talking about the syzygy. We're born with a syzygy, which I think is the, our true self, our daemon or divine self, and talks more about synchronicities. But, uh, yeah, this part of the book, uh, Jung gets very occult and very esoteric. Again, he just doesn't care anymore. Like, I'm he talks sorry, about I'm... ghosts, a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I love the way you talk and nobody puts it like you do. So thank you for that. But now I can't stop laughing. Um, there <laughs> yeah, is Lord, your unconscious is going to kill you any moment. It's going to make you jump out the window <laughs> if you're not a good. Yeah, it's like, it's like if, if things weren't hard enough. We are, our own unconscious wants to. Yeah, wants to destroy oh, us. Oh, Miguel, I love it. Humans. Thank you for coming into my life because I love it. Um, there, well, I just don't want to forget to mention this. When you were saying that, it reminded me of episode seven with Christina Becker. She wrote a book on, is the unconscious ethical? Oh, wow. I love and it. Yes, I interviewed her in person. Uh, the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts had their annual fall conference here in Chicago. And it was like three months after I started this podcast. It was back in 2015. They they descended on this, I don't know, like this cheap embassy suites or something in um, <laughs> down by the big mall there in, in Willowbrook or what is that? Oakbrook? Yeah. And so an Oakbrook, yeah. Uh, I set up in there and I did four 
interviews. David Shane, actually, The War of the Gods and Addiction. We recorded oh, that episode wow. there. And Mark Winborn, his first episode, and uh, somebody else. I can't remember now. And Christina Becker, she lives in the Toronto area, and she told the story, and I had no idea what she was talking about, about some politician and somebody beat them up they it was a it, it was an act of road rage where she said that the unconscious will just burst forth and it could wow. kill you wow. it could kill you and i think that that just kind of got lost in that episode because we talked about so many different things and then afterwards i think she she asked me if i wanted to maybe take that out and no i wanted to leave it in and now i kind of want to go back and re-listen to that but Thank you for that reminder. That is very true. They, you said the unconscious is not fucking around, and that couldn't be more true. And that, again, is what separates depth psychology, Jungian psychology, Freud from all the other schools is that they recognize that there is an unconscious. And I actually posted something on Facebook about this a couple weeks ago. It got more likes I, I hate looking at the number of likes, but it got more <laughs> likes than probably anything I have ever posted before on Facebook. It was just me. It wasn't a quote. It was just me saying that uh, that very thing about the unconscious is, look, it's what's driving the bus. It's what's running the show. You can cut out dairy and not eat meat all day long. <laughs> exactly. But that's not going to change the fact that there is an unconscious and it is what's driving the bus. Yeah, and you may want to be a writer or the president of the United States or CEO, but sorry, it's you're just asking for immeasurable pain in this life or the next mm -hmm. life. It's There is something for you and you have to listen to it. And it, in a way, it's, it's liberating because when, I, I mean, as you know, Laura, once we listen to the unconscious, to the pleroma, it like I don't know if life gets better, but it feels that sense of serenity and meaningfulness and destiny it gets more and happiness. Yeah, and there's a bliss to it. A giddy, there are times when when I'm listening to my yeah, authentic. You hit it when I'm driving and I can listen to my unconscious and I start giggling. Because mm -hmm. I, I, it's like Donnie Darko in the movie when he does his mission and he's about to die with the, with the engine. He's just giggling. Now I understood why he's giggling because it's like the Buddha. He sees reality for what it is yeah. and he is aligned with his soul. And there's no feeling like it in the universe. The woman who was my analyst for 17 years, she finally did an episode with me after five years because she wrote a book and... Well, it's a long story, and it's in episode 70, but we talked on the phone because we hadn't spoken in a while um, before we recorded the episode, and every time I mentioned something serious or something I was struggling with or something somebody said to me, she would laugh, and I had forgotten <laughs> about that, yeah, and I would start laughing too, and it reminded me of when I was in analysis and how much I laughed. And I, a lot of times, didn't know why I was laughing, but I, I have so much more insight into that now. And yeah, yeah, she, she would just laugh. And I don't mean she wasn't. You, you know what I mean. She wasn't laughing at me. She was laughing no, at no, it. No. Yeah, I think Jung, when you said how Jungian therapists have to 
know themselves. Yeah, I think it reminds me of the whole Hierophant and uh, Psycho Pont, I'm saying it wrong, that you would have in Gnosticism and Hermeticism, where you'd have the teacher who would have these dialogues with his student and sort of nurture his soul out. So I think, yeah, you you both mm-hmm. being connected. And some, think, some say that they were one and the same. I think in Gnosticism, some think that Thomas is the lower form of Jesus, and when he's right talking in his gospel, he's really talking to himself, and Jesus becomes sort of just this archetypal image. Or if you want to think he's historical, then he was the real Jesus. But that's it's more of this sort of dialogue back and forth. Again, that's what uh, that's why Jung found him so interesting or useful, and I think it's it still gets overlooked. I'm still amazed how therapists sort of. I never hear like on your show barely anybody talking about Gnosticism Mm -hmm. and I know I know it got I know well later on in his life Jung Jung obviously got into alchemy but that's still Gnosticism because that's still part of Hermes and uh, the Hermetics obviously alchemy is indebted or was created by the Hermetics of uh, Alexandria which were of course the pagan Gnostics but it's still pretty weird and then I mean, obviously, you could have people like Alfred Reby or Lance Owens. They could argue till the cows come home about Jung uh, and Gnosticism, how they're completely so two sides of the same coin. And obviously, Jung had to back off because uh, what when he did the um, the Seven Sermons to the Dead, mm-hmm. it really upset Martin Buber, the great Jewish uh, philosopher, whose book, uh, The Eclipse of God, is such a good book, if anybody ever gets to read it. But Buber got upset because, of course, this brings up, there was this trope about Gnosticism, Gnosticism being anti-Semitic, which has been completely destroyed in modern times. But and under, Jung was being very sensitive, so he sort of backed up and said, well, it was just a youthful indiscretion and all that. So he always had to be sort of uh, underground with these things. But even today, I feel most therapists overlook the whole Gnosticism and Jung thing, except for the exceptions I've mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Lance Owens is brilliant. I yeah. had him on oh, the yeah. podcast, but he was part of a roundtable, and I could have done an, an entire episode with him. He His website, Gnosis.org, I love and um, yes, he's been on your show. I will provide a link to that episode in the show notes. That was back in 2011 you had him on. Yeah, we were talking about the Red Book and Tolkien and all that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you said Thomas, were you referring to the Gospel of Thomas? Yes, mm-hmm, yeah. And it's I a heard, sort of, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I remember you referring to it as the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And uh, John Lash, who that's how I found your show originally is because I heard an interview with John Lash, John Lamb Lash, it might have been on Whitley Strieber's Dreamland. And then I went searching around for other episodes that or other interviews that he had done. And that's how I found your show. And as I mentioned, when I was a guest on your show a couple months ago, I mentioned that that um, uh, that was the first episode of Aeon Bite that I had heard was way back in 2007. But when you guys were talking about the Gospel of Thomas, he saw it as kind of weak and not particularly heretical. But why did you refer to it as as kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room? Ooh, I can't remember. That oh, was like 12 okay. years ago. I'm trying to think. <laughs> okay. 
And also my views have changed. I mean, the Gospel of Thomas is so interesting because mm-hmm. it is so it's much more aligned to the canonical gospels. There are parables and mm-hmm. scenes in mm-hmm. there. Uh, it doesn't have the again this uh, this sort of um, again trippy psychedelic yeah. image of the archons and the pleroma and Sophia and the you know the hundred modes of reality that you see with the Gnostics. It's very down to earth. But when you start reading it, it does it does have the archons. It does have the demiurge. There is a structure to it, as researchers like John Munter have found. I mean, the ancients never did anything randomly. Everything they ordered, as we're finding out, had to follow some sort of gematria or Kabbalistic numerology. So it's it's very intricate. But my view on the Gospel of Thomas is just, it has changed. I mean, there are times I think it's just a, it's a greatest hits of alternative Christianity. Other times I think, you no, know, it's... A, there is a message and a cadence and a rhythm to all the sayings and what they sing, and it's very coded and esoteric. So I'm trying to, I can't remember what was, I don't know back then what, what, what the 800 pound gorilla was at the time, mm, okay. <laughs> what projection I had those days. <laughs> Were there other things that you wanted to mention? No, I think I got it all, unless there's something, any other questions you have. I think I have gotten everything off my chest. I wanted to get off. <laughs> and we're not, I don't think we're going to get canceled. I was going to bring up freedom of speech, but I don't even know if I want to open that up right now. Yeah. I, one answer is it, it does get tiring. Uh, every show I do, I get somebody goes, Oh, this person you had was too right wing. Oh my God, how could you have a Jew? Oh my God, this person is a socialist. Oh my God, I mean, somebody is upset about something that I, know. I have on my show, and mm. I'm completely political, blind color. I mean, I just want yeah. your mind and your soul. That's what I'm looking yeah. when I talk mm-hmm. to guests. I want the spirit within them. Mm-hmm. The rest I could give a shit. Right, and it's your life to live. Uh, but uh, people, so I, I have like this new answer that I'm going to start saying to people. I'm just going to say, okay. look, A.M. Byte is not a platform. A.M. Byte is a mirror, period. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Because there's no point in. Beautiful. There's no point in arguing or trying to explain to people why I had a guess or anything. This just doesn't make sense. I love it. You want to leave it there? That was yeah. beautiful. Thank you, yeah. Miguel. Oh, that was a lot of fun. That yeah. a blast. All right, I'm going to read the outro. What do you think? Okay. Stay with me? I am. Okay. Please visit the website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G dot com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, I'm still laughing at what you were saying, play (laughs) Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or TuneIn. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to my very special guest, Miguel Connor, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to a special quarantine edition of Speaking of Young.